0: I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is.
1: From the political science
2: department at UW-Madison.
0: Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger.
2: This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman.
0: This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier.
2: And this is 1050 Basketball. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are grateful to have the opportunity to talk with Dr. Barry Burden, Professor of Political Science and Director of the Elections Research Center, about what many commentators are describing as proposals to restrict voting. These so-called voter suppression bills are steadily gaining traction across the Sun Belt, aiming to slow the effects of ongoing demographic shifts that many believe favor Democrats. and. As of April 1st, 2021, state legislators have introduced 361 bills with voting restriction provisions across 47 states. First things first, thank you so much for jumping back on the pod with us today, Professor Burden.
0: Oh, glad to be here. Thanks for having me back. Yes.
2: And I think uh, just for transparency's sake, Adam and I should mention that we are still recovering from taking your final exam yesterday. So, if maybe we're a little bit too easy on Professor Burden, the audience understands why that might be.
0: And if I seem distracted during the conversation, it's because I'm actually grading the exam while we're talking.
2: Ah, oh no. Well, we'll keep that in (laughs) mind. Keep that in mind. Anyways, it appears that the next frontier in the battle over voting rights is escalating pretty quickly across states in the South and the Sun Belt. And these cases kind of have two things in common. First, That these states are seeing a rapid demographic shift in their electorates that might favor Democrats and that they have entrenched political interests trying to stop it. And given your expertise, that's what we want to talk with you about today. So let's start broadly. Can you talk about these demographic shifts that seem to have favored Democrats in 2020 and who these entrenched interests are that are trying to quell a potentially growing blue advantage in places like Georgia, Arizona, and even Texas?
0: Well, you started by pointing us in exactly the right direction. These are all swing states that were not swing states five years ago or 10 years ago. Places like Georgia and Arizona, Democrats had not won there during a presidential year since the 1990s. So I think there's a new sense of urgency for state legislators to make sure they've tilted the playing field in their favor as much as possible, or to address what they think are weaknesses in the election system. And that new competitiveness in these southern and sunbelt states is largely due to demographic shifts, but maybe not the ones that people have pointed so much attention to. It's true that non-white voters, Black voters, Hispanic voters, and Asian voters have been helping to make Arizona, Texas, Georgia competitive. But I think it's also the influx of Northerners who have moved there. The Atlanta metro region has grown tremendously, or big cities in Texas are these just giant metropolises that have been driven partly by immigration, but also by migration from Northern and Western states, you know, retirees moving to the South for better weather, or workers who are going there because those are places where a lot of jobs are being created. And all of that has just led to a more diverse and more politically competitive environment.
1: Yeah. As we're talking about some of these states, I want to focus on Georgia and the election bill that has been in the public eye coming out of the legislature there, where they have been trying to legislate restrictions like identification requirements for absentee ballots and limiting ballot drop boxes and shortening runoff elections. And I know that the Elections Research Center has done research on some of these kinds of measures and their effects on the possible voting behaviors and turnout of people. Can you speak a little bit to some of the research that the center has done on some of these measures?
0: Yeah, it's a really good question, though it is sort of difficult to put together the social science research that exists with all of the things that are in the Georgia bill. It's sort of a conglomeration of a lot of different ideas that have been stuck together. I think the bill runs about 100 pages, and it's just a kind of hodgepodge of stuff, not all of which has been studied. So, for example, there was a lot of outrage about the limits on being able to provide food and drink to people who are waiting in line, rightly so. We have no idea (laughs) what that will do. It just hasn't been researched on water being provided to voters. I think also one of the things that's not noticed about the Georgia bill so much is not the restrictions in place, though those are real, but also what it's doing to bring up voting opportunities in rural parts of the state. And Georgia is a place where the party politics are largely between the Atlanta metro region and the rest of the state. So it's it's an urban-rural divide as well as a racial divide. And so Republicans will say, actually, our bill enhances early voting by providing more days and guaranteeing that everyone has two Saturdays on which they can vote early. But all of the voting locations in Atlanta were providing those things already. So there's really no improvement for voters there. And if anything, there might be some rolling back of voting opportunities. But in other parts of the state, they are not going to be more days and and an extra weekend, probably. You know, what we know from research is that expanding voting opportunities surprisingly doesn't do a lot to increase voter turnout. So offering more days of early voting uh, on its own doesn't seem to have much of an impact. Making voter registration easier does. And most of these bills that we're going to talk about don't do much on the voter registration side. They're very focused on absentee voting, because that's the set of issues that came out of 2020. But what we don't know as much about is what happens when you start to restrict absentee or early voting opportunities. We know what happens when it rolls out. It generally does not have as much of a positive effect as people might assume. But pulling back, I've argued, is more disruptive to voters, because it's forcing voters who have taken to particular habits, ways of voting. You know, there are African Americans who, for example, will vote after church on Sunday as part of the Souls to the Polls effort. Well, if you take away a Sunday of voting, you're now going to force those voters to do something different than what they've been doing. And that creates some cost and some disruption that's likely to affect turnout. So I think the new opportunities that are being provided are unlikely to have much effect in Georgia. But some of the restrictions earlier dates for returning absentee ballots, more identification requirements, those are going to at least present more burdens for voters. And whether they actually translate to lower turnout, I think depends on how groups and parties respond to them.
2: And while we're on the subject of specific states here, let's travel a little bit farther south to Florida from Georgia, because we're recording this on May 6th. And just this morning, Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, signed into law one of these voting bills that looks to uh, restrict or limit voting opportunities. Could you talk to us a little bit about this still-developing situation in Florida and maybe how this bill is similar or different to this other suite of bills in these southern and southern-belt
0: states? It's remarkable how similar it is to the Georgia bill. (laughs) You can identify provisions that show up in both uh, for example, limiting food and water to people who are waiting in line, that's in both bills. Prohibiting local election officials from getting private grant money, that's in both bills and in some other states. Requiring that voters provide an ID number to get an absentee ballot in both bills. Limiting drop boxes <laughs> in both bills. So there's, there's definitely some conversation going on between policymakers in those two states. Uh, even though the circumstances are really different, Georgia was the big swing state this past election cycle that resulted in two new senators, you know, switching parties and going to Joe Biden for the first time in a long time. But Florida was not so much of a swing state. Trump won fairly comfortably there. So I think there's, you know, and that's a sort of guide as to what in the world is going on. Why would Florida pass these provisions if, as everyone said, including the governor and President Trump, they thought the Florida elections were run quite well Despite worries that many people have about elections in Florida, they came off pretty cleanly. But today's event was not a regular bill signing. It was a special event limited to one media outlet. That was Fox News. All other reporters were locked out of the building. And it was broadcast live as sort of a rally with the governor surrounded by his supporters. And they were cheering. And he talked about a lot of things on the air besides the bill. So it looked to me more like a kind of stage setting for a potential presidential candidate who has cozied up to the Trump wing of the party. They, they have close connections. In fact, the event was held pretty close to Mar-a-Lago at a Hilton hotel. And you know whether the measures actually affect elections in Florida may be a sort of secondary concern. This is red meat that can show that Governor DeSantis or his fellow conservatives is taking voting integrity seriously in Florida. And that's the message I think he wants to convey with the bill. And that makes you wonder whether governors in some other states who are signing the bills are also interested mainly in election integrity and ensuring voting rights, or whether it's a way to appease some elements of their party or the electorate who just want to see these things.
2: And speaking of other governors, let's start heading to the West now and just kind of summarize the rest of the situation with what's going on in Texas and Arizona. Are there significant differences between the bills in Texas and Arizona and these other states, or do these still just continue to fall in line? with the general provisions and trends of these bills that we've been discussing.
0: There are definitely common themes about wanting to check and provide more security and more requirements for people voting absentee. Concerns about drop boxes, concerns about private foundation money supporting local election costs. Texas is a little more uncertain because the bill has not gotten to the governor's desk, and there are a couple of competing bills, one in the House, one in the Senate, that don't quite match. And I think the Republicans who run the show there are having a conversation among themselves about what they want to do. Those things are likely to be revised a bit before they get to the governor's desk. We saw some of that in Georgia, too, where the initial versions of the bill were harsher than what was eventually enacted and had some pretty extreme provisions, like doing away with all no excuse absentee voting. That was one of the ideas that didn't make it to the final bill. What's a little different in Texas is that the business community has spoken up. Some large corporations like American Airlines, Dell Computers that are based in Texas or have a big presence there have come out publicly to oppose the bill. And in Georgia, that didn't happen. When big companies like Delta Airlines spoke, it was after the bill was enacted. So it was really too late to make um, changes there. So I think that's giving Republicans some pause in Texas or it's just it's causing a conversation that didn't happen in other states. Arizona, I think the legislation there is being overshadowed by the audit that Republicans in the Senate are doing in a coliseum in downtown Phoenix. We might talk about that. That's really a unique thing that we're not seeing in other states. It's sort of a continuation of the 2020 election six months afterwards. So it's not quite over for some people.
1: As we're talking about these bills, there are two sides of the argument that we're seeing. We're seeing people on the left arguing that some of these bills are reincarnations of voter suppression laws that we've seen in the past. And those on the right are arguing that these bills are aiming to increase voter trust in the system and increase voter trust in elections. Can you walk us through these arguments a little bit?
0: Yeah, I think you've got it right. Those are Kind of the frames that Democrats and Republicans have been using, and you get some pretty extreme portrayals of these bills that I think are not really accurate. You know, as they're either the end of the world or they're going to save elections. They're they're neither one of those things. And as as in the case of Georgia, it's sort of a hodgepodge of stuff that doesn't all go in the same direction and doesn't all necessarily make sense together. So um, these are these are compromises. I think Democrats are right in being concerned that. Republican legislators and governors seem to be taking aim at the very provisions that Democratic voters were most likely to use last year during the pandemic, in particular voting by mail, registering online, requesting ballots online, dropping ballots in drop boxes, having people gather ballots, what's called ballot harvesting, Uh, or using mobile voting locations, early voting locations, all of those things are being targeted. And it's not coincidence that it's Democrats who were more likely to use them, and voters of color who are much more likely to be Democratic voters. And in places like Georgia, the racial divide is just a very important part of politics. So I think Democrats have real reason to be concerned, given where these bills are focusing their energy. You know, Republicans have been concerned for the last year. About election integrity, really following the message they heard from their party leader, Donald Trump, who had been railing about elections, about absentee ballots in particular, actually going back to about 2015 when he first ran for president. Even after he won the 2016 election, he complained that he should have won the popular vote as well as the electoral vote, and he would have won by much more had it not been for all these non citizens who were voting and the fraud and absentee ballots. There was no factual basis in that. But it set the stage for Republicans being inclined to accept those arguments, and and Trump really kept at it through 2020, going after some of his own party officials, including election officials in Georgia and elsewhere. And so, you know, there is a sort of through line if you follow the complaints that Trump made and then look at the lawsuits that were filed in a lot of these swing states, including Wisconsin, in the days after the election in Arizona I think there were eight lawsuits and they were all shut down and now the bills that are being produced in these states they're not all the same but there are some of the same concerns and themes from the republican side and i think republican voters who have internalized trump's message are genuinely concerned that there are non-citizens voting or people voting twice or other kinds of things even if there isn't really a factual basis to that we're just very inclined as people to accept ideas that come from trusted sources And if you're a Democrat, Joe Biden or Barack Obama is your trusted source. And if you're a Republican, Donald Trump or Fox News is your trusted source. And I think a lot of Republicans also find it difficult to believe they lost this election because people they know are also Republicans. And so who are all these Democrats who are giving Joe Biden this massive win of millions of votes? It just seems implausible given the kinds of media they consume and the conversations they have. I don't think that these measures are going to do much to increase voter confidence voter confidence was lowered this past election cycle because public officials said that people shouldn't be confident. <laughs> they, they said, we shouldn't trust the system. It's rigged. There's it's scandalous. It's fraudulent. And that caused people to lose confidence. The best thing we can do to rebuild confidence is to tell voters, you should be confident in your system. We ran an amazing election in 2020 during a pandemic in which a record number of people cast ballots in new ways, ways they had never done it before. So that's a positive story that just is not being told. But I I think that would do more than any of these election reform bills to rebuild confidence.
2: No, that all makes a a lot of sense. And thank you for going into some of that psychology and the chain of reasoning which which might, you know, lead to some of these perspectives. I think that that was really, really useful for me to hear. And I think it will be for a lot of our listeners as well. But something that I want to follow up on while we're on the subject is that one of the important questions that has come up on this podcast with our interviewees again and again is, what is the trajectory of the GOP in a post-Trump era? I think that this has been one of the big questions that might just determine a lot in American politics for at least a decade or so. And it feels like everyone who we've had on the pod has been looking for some kind of indication in the early days of the Biden era as to which direction the GOP will take after, if it's going to either maybe resume its, say, compassionate conservatism Bush era ...type of shtick, or if it's going to shift over into the more make America great again Trump camp and sit there. And as you discuss these as kind of a continuation of arguments and policies that originated from more or less the Trump camp, do you think that we can read the fervor for these bills by Republicans across multiple states as an indication of which way the GOP is going... Or do you think that it would be improper to interpret this as such a signal?
0: No, it's a good question. I do think it's one of the signs that the Republican Party has been remade in the last four or five years as a Trump party. You know, there are other signs as well. There's right now a battle in the Republican leadership in the House of Representatives over whether Liz Cheney, Congresswoman from Wyoming, should remain in the leadership. She's a very conservative Republican legislator from a very red state and as a lineage in Republican politics. Her father was Dick Cheney, vice president and so on. Looks like she's gonna be ousted from what the news says today by a replacement who is a more Trump-like politician. Not, not more conservative in the traditional left-right view of things, but more Trump-like in, this, in the kind of style and attitude about institutions and authorities and media. So I think that's really where the Republican Party has gone. The fact that these lawsuits, litigation, and the legislation is spawning across the states, even after Trump's loss, says that you know Republican legislators and governors are still really attached to his brand and his central role in the party. They're still in communication with him. Uh, many of them are traveling to Florida to meet with him, which I, it's just a kind of different development that we see with previous presidents who have left office especially ones who have lost. You know, when George Bush, George W. Bush, finished his eight years in office, he won two elections, and and this re-election was both an electoral college win and a popular vote win. And Republicans didn't really want to touch him after he left office. They were going in a different direction. John McCain declared when he ran for president in 08, essentially, I'm not a Bush Republican. (laughs) I'm my own person. And right now, I don't think you'd hear very many Republicans who are in the leadership who really have a shot at leading the party as saying that kind of thing. And so you've got to be, like Ron DeSantis, on board with these bills if you're going to build a following in the Republican Party today.
2: An important question that I guess we'll keep getting more and more data points to answer as time goes on, but thank you for weighing in. And to continue talking about these pieces of legislation, as you brought up earlier, a lot of these are being brought into pretty purple states. And purple states who right now have a very energized group of Democratic or left-wing voters. I mean, a great example for that is Georgia, which, you know, Biden won in the 2020 election and has had incredible grassroots movement driven by national-named figures like Stacey Abrams. But the legislature, nonetheless, is still working on one of these restrictive voting bills. So I want to ask, what types of strategies... Do you see these activists and even other legislatures in states like this attempting to try and counteract this legislation? And how effective do you think it will
0: be? Boy, it's hard to say, but it's obviously important for these groups. You know, there is a cynical view of all of this that says Republicans and Democrats like to have these battles over election rules because it's a way to mobilize their supporters. Republicans can say to their folks, look, there are people abusing the system and we can't trust elections, we need to take action. Help us do that. And so that really gens up anxiety among their supporters. And Democrats can say, look, those Republicans are trying to take away our voting rights, they're trying to steal democracy, and that's really motivating too for raising money and getting you know, people to volunteer. There's a little bit of kind of perverse incentives for both sides and I think Some of that drives the lawsuits and the social media campaigns that go on. But in the end, there's going to be an election. You know, there's going to be another set of federal elections in November 2022 and another presidential election after it. And the parties really do want to win those. So, you know, generating enthusiasm or anxiety among their supporters is one way to do it. But in the end, they'd like to overcome whatever barriers are in place and and actually take the election. I think the evidence and some of the research shows that Democratic groups... Are able to benefit in the short term from backlash to these laws. So, when voter identification laws are initially enacted, for example, there's some research showing that groups can mobilize their supporters to help overcome them. But that takes a lot of resources. Groups, you know, the Democratic Party, the NAACP, the ACLU, other groups have to pour a lot of money and time into educating their voters about what's happening, helping them overcome the barriers and making it an issue. And I think there's a kind of novelty when these laws first go into effect that people are really focused on them, but groups just can't keep that up over time. I I heard the NAACP in North Carolina say that when the voter ID law was enacted there, they put a lot of resources into educating their supporters about it and trying to get them IDs and get folks to comply. They can't do that every election. They have other things <laughs> that are pulling on their resources. So I think the short-term effect and the long-term effects are likely to be different. You know, So if, if these laws get passed now in the spring or summer of 2021, I think it's an important question. Will they still be salient by the time the general elections roll around last year, uh, next year? The 2020 election was strangely kind of about the election. One of the top issues in the campaign was the election system itself. That's not healthy, but it probably did contribute to higher levels of turnout. People were really alarmed about that. I don't know if it's going to carry over to the next midterm elections in the same way. We will have other issues on the table, like redistricting will be a factor in 2022 that was not this past election cycle. But I, I think it's certainly an important dynamic to watch.
1: Yeah, Let's jump into this conversation now on the big lie because there have been surveys that have been coming out as recently as last week showing majorities of Republicans and even like super majorities of Republicans believing that at least part of President Biden's win in November was fraudulent and saying that an audit of the vote in Arizona might actually change the outcome. Are the proportions of Republicans who so, who actually think this greatly exaggerated, or should we be believing this polling that there are a lot of Republicans that believe that the election was fraudulent still?
0: Sadly, I think I become more worried about this each day we get further from the election, from the last election. And here's why. In previous presidential elections, The folks who voted for the winner always feel better about things. (laughs) It it helps when you win. And so, you know, when Barack Obama won won the election in 08 or in 2012, Democrats thought the system was very trustworthy. They were confident that their vote was counted properly. All of those kinds of survey questions turned up high levels of trust. And Republicans were just more skeptical, especially in swing states. That that was the real pattern. And likewise, when Trump won in 2016, Republican voters suddenly became more confident, Democrats somewhat less. So you get a little bit of the seesawing back and forth, but it's usually a relatively small effect and it usually dissipates. It's just sort of the sour grapes right after the election. Voters are trying to rationalize for themselves. How could it be that my side lost? It can't be that our message is not as good or our policies are not as good or our candidates not as good. It must be something about the system. But as reality sets in and the new president takes office, people tend to let those feelings go. But what's been different this time around is that those feelings have not gone anywhere. The share of Republicans who do not believe the election results when asked back in January, around the time of the counting the electoral votes and the insurrection, is about the same as where it is in April. It just has not moved much. So we're not seeing the kind of softening of opinion as the you know, the kind of intensity of election day recedes into the background and we're focused on other things. And in addition, you've got this large share of Republicans who say they don't believe Biden was the legitimate winner. And I want to believe that's just people sort of cheering for their side or being performative and really rooting for Republicans. But it too has not moved at all since they were first asked back in December or January. And some pollsters have done some really Helpful, though also scary, follow up questions where they've asked people when someone says in a survey, I don't think Joe Biden legitimately won the most votes and should be president. There was a CNN survey recently that asked, Okay, but do you think the evidence on that is really solid or a little shaky? Are you a little suspicious or do you really have good reason to believe this? And a lot of Republicans really doubled down on those things and said, No, 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 this is not just me spouting. I really think there's hard evidence that Joe Biden didn't win. The plurality of the vote in enough states to win the electoral college, this, this whole thing is a sham. And the fact that so many people on one side of the aisle are still attached to those ideas and it hasn't softened, and it's a much bigger disparity than we saw after 2016 or after 2012 or 2008, that's a worry. I, I don't know what is going to get us to a point of consensus. And as long as there are lawsuits and legislation and... Strange recounts and assertions going on. It provides, I think, people with more fuel to believe those things.
2: To follow up on that, I want to ask you what you make of President Biden's strategy of addressing this issue, because it really more or less has been a strategy of not addressing it. He's more or less kind of just plowed through the skepticism and gone on with his presidential duties regardless of this very real skepticism of his legitimacy that most definitely exists. So I want to ask, do you think that this is the best strategy for President Biden to follow? Like, should he be doing something different? Should he be taking this on from a bit more head-on direction? And do you think that this issue might cut into his ability to enact or pursue his agenda?
0: I, I think it is in the sense that he and his press team don't want to repeat mistruths that are out there, whether it's about the election or, any, or about the vaccine or anything else. So when Jen Psaki gets asked questions in her daily briefing that she thinks are not based in fact, she will simply dismiss them and move on rather than repeating them. And I think that's learning from some mistakes of the media over the last five or six years or longer, maybe going back to the Iraq War or other places where things were not factually based maybe intentionally mistruths and in trying to debunk them the media would repeat them and that gave them a kind of credence or it was a sort of he said she said you know here's some here's what one side says here's what the other side says even if one side is saying gravity is real and the other side is saying gravity doesn't exist those are not equal propositions in terms of factual backing but It makes it easier for the side who believes the nutty thing or the conspiratorial thing to hang on to it, if it at least gets acknowledgement. So I think the Biden team trying not to acknowledge the big lie aspects of the election is helpful. It's obviously not solved the problem because the polls are still showing the kind of difference between Republican and Democratic voters, or I would say between Republican and all other voters since the election. That has not gone away. But yeah, it's a very different approach than the Trump administration, right? It's not about. Biden very much. We don't see a lot of him. He's not tweeting in the same way, but it, it's, it's not made Republican animosity go away. We just, that's going to hang around.
2: I'd like to ask what you think the long-term impacts of the, you know, quote unquote, big lie might be because as you were discussing, how bad this might be is kind of a function of its longevity and how long that this kind of mistrust persists in our electoral system. And earlier than that, you were talking about as long as there are public figures who are going to give credence to this idea, it is likely that it will still persist in some kind of notable quantity. So then my question is, like, how bad do you think these long-term impacts could be? How do you think that they will impact voter turnout or perceptions of legitimacy in U.S. elections, even maybe in, say, 2022 or 2024 in their respective elections?
0: Yeah, I I don't know, but I am concerned that these beliefs are going to hang around through the next election cycle or a couple of cycles and it will make voters less confident in a system that they really ought to have lots of confidence in this is you know a central foundational point of a representative democracy we need to believe that the game operates fairly and that it's impartial and that people have the right the ability to participate and so if you think it's being rigged in some way, then I think all other attitudes about democracy are fair game then too. But again, I don't see it moving very much in the short term because the kinds of people who are skeptical about the election system having integrity are also skeptical about mass media and authorities, universities, <laughs> you, know, uh, you name it, um, big institutions, and now even big business in some places. So if those kinds of populist anti-institutional, anti-authority attitudes are there, then you know that's how you get Republicans in Georgia not even trusting their own Republican governor and Republican Secretary of State, or trusting Liz Cheney who has real Republican credentials because she said what Trump is circulating is a is a lie about the election. So it's a worry. And if it becomes a kind of litmus test for Republican candidates who are running for governor next year or running for president two years after that. It just you know, perpetuates that cycle. What we need are some alternative voices who are going to be credible to Republican voters and can offer a more fact-based alternative. The downside for the Republicans is it may hurt their own voter turnout. We don't have a lot of research on this yet, but I've seen at least one academic study that suggests that Republicans paid a price in the two Georgia Senate runoffs because Republican voters there, not just republicans but the the trumpiest of the republican voters believed what trump was saying about the election not being trustworthy and that caused them to participate less in the runoff and that's not what usually happens in georgia typically republicans do very well at runoff times there's been a while since we've had one and georgia's obviously changing demographically is what we as we were saying but the democrats held fast you know they didn't they didn't leak voters between the november initial election and the runoff that happened in January. But some Republican areas seem to have. So Republicans might be hurting themselves by perpetuating falsehoods.
2: And then to follow up on that, you were talking about how one thing that's essentially needed to maybe kind of counter these narratives are prominent and credible voices that are trusted in the Republican Party. But then like where does that leave us as just like concerned citizens? Like is there anything we can do or is there even anything that we ought to do to try and participate this to improve our society somewhat? Like what recommendations would you just have for I don't know the average joe who might not even have a have a podcast to consider themselves a, a notable or
0: noticed voice? Well, tough question. Tell your friends (laughs) that you think the elections were well run. Thank your election officials and praise them. They're not all perfect, but they've been through a lot over the last year in difficult circumstances. Communicate to your state legislators that we don't need to take drastic measures to improve an election system that worked pretty well last year. There are always fixes to be made. We should do a review what worked well in 2020 and what didn't. And so I would hope that each state legislature would hold serious hearings to try to gather information from election officials, from experts, from voters, from advocacy groups to find out where things should be tweaked. It's not as though the system should just let to run on its own, but the kind of reactionary response to absentee voting which had a kind of unusual experience in 2020 during the pandemic. It's not likely to be repeated. That doesn't seem like the most responsible way to move forward. And so I think just communicating with our elected officials and reminding them of your views when the next election rolls around, I think is a way to try to help keep them accountable. So supporting people who are virtuous voices in the public sphere is a good way to go. That can involve even things like writing letters to the editor and hosting podcasts and other other ways to kind of circulate the good news about what's going on in elections.
1: Well, I'm certainly glad that hosting a podcast is on that list. As we're thinking of these impacts, what are some of the approaches that the Election Research Center is going to take to tackle the research on these? What are some of the big questions that the center is going to be asking?
0: Yeah, there's some really important questions you know, when the pandemic hit just about a year ago, the states were gearing up to run a presidential election, and many of them had, were having presidential primaries at that time, including Wisconsin. They had to tear down and rebuild their election systems, you know, on the fly. This is like rebuilding a ship while you're traveling across the ocean and make sure it's ready by about September when the, the first absentee ballots would go out while we're in the midst of a pandemic and an economic collapse. Extremely challenging, and a lot of states made temporary adjustments or responded to temporary ways that voters were doing things differently. Like the heavy use of absentee ballots is the most obvious. And so, places like Georgia rolled out drop boxes when they never had them, or Wisconsin actually began to use drop boxes when they didn't have them, or private foundations began to fund localities who needed money to pay to recruit poll workers. It was very difficult during the pandemic to find people to work the polls. So I think one of the things the center is looking at and a project I'm doing in particular is to see how much of the practices that got put in place for the exceptional circumstances of 2020 are going to hang around and will be just the permanent parts of the election infrastructure and in which things will sort of recede and we'll go back to elections the way they were before. And that's both on the part of election officials who have to figure out what what are polling places going to look like? Should we continue to vote in arenas the way some people were doing in 2020? Or should we go back to neighborhood polling places? Should we have drop boxes everywhere or only one in each city or none at all? But also on the voter side, so many voters moved into voting by mail for the first time. We'd like to know, just for planning purposes, will those people stick with the vote by mail option going into future elections or will they revert back? Did people really like that voting in person experience and they'd like to go back to that? So You know, in Wisconsin in particular, I'm just in the midst of doing a survey of all of the state's election officials, all of the municipal clerks who run elections in the cities, towns, and villages around the state, and a parallel survey of the public in Wisconsin. And I'm asking some of the same questions in both surveys. Uh, For example, support for drop boxes. Do you think there should be a drop box in every community? Should there be no drop boxes? Should communities be allowed to have as many drop boxes as they like? Or should there be a limit on those things? And, you know, those kinds of questions being asked in both surveys will let us see whether there's a correspondence between what election officials think is good policy and what voters would like and where there is correspondence, we should move ahead, right? When both sides agree, it seems like the right policy. And if there's a disagreement trying to figure out why it is and, you know, what, what are the right ways to move forward? We're also going to be asking voters how, by what means did they vote in the past was it on election day? Was it during early voting? Was it by mail? What did they do in 2020 in response to the pandemic? Did they change those behaviors? And now having done that, how are they likely to vote in the future when the next round of elections roll around? Will they stick with mail and doing, you know, requesting ballots online and all of those convenient things? Or do they want to go back to the neighborhood polling place and registering to vote at their clerk's office and those kinds of things? So I think there are a whole bunch of questions that are kind of around planning and good policy. They're the kinds of things that some of these state legislators are not doing in pushing bills forward to kind of do the hard work of figuring out what really worked and what didn't and what are the best ways to serve voters.
2: And uh, when work is completed on those studies, we'd love to have you back on to talk about their results. But as we're starting to wind down our conversation today, we'd like to ask you what should We have asked you, is there something that we haven't talked about yet today that you feel like this conversation wouldn't be complete if we didn't address it or just anything else that you feel like our listeners need to hear on this topic?
0: Yeah, I think there are two other things happening in the background while all of this action is happening at the state level that are worth knowing about. One is at the federal level, Democrats who now control both chambers of Congress are pushing through a pretty big election reform bill called the For the People Act. It's HR1, so it's gotten the number one slot from Speaker Pelosi. It's already passed the House, and it's now going to run into uh, trouble in the Senate because of the, the filibuster, and even because one or two of the Senate Democrats are not for it at the moment. But it's a massive reform bill that would do a whole lot of things differently than what the states are doing. You know, it would implement same-day voter registration in every state. It would implement a minimum amount of early voting in every state. It would allow people with felony records who are no longer incarcerated to have voting rights. It would create a public financing system where candidates for president or for Congress would get public money matching small donations that they raise on their own. It would create non-partisan redistricting commissions in every state. I mean, there's a lot going on. This is about an 800-page bill, and it's just taking things in a very different direction from what is happening in Georgia, Arizona, Texas, and these other states we've talked about. Its prospects, are, I think, are you know rocky in the Senate. 60 votes seems impossible to even get 50 votes if the Democrats want to do away with the current filibuster procedure. It's also going to be challenging. But it's also different from what's happening in the states in that the bill was not written to respond to 2020. The bill actually passed before the 2020 election, and now they brought it back with some changes. What's going on in the states, in in the red states, the ones that are, where Republicans are in control, is really just an immediate response to what happened six months ago, in the November 2020 election. So there are these kind of parallel tracks, and also in a in a bunch of states that we're not talking about, that are not getting the spotlight because they're not battlegrounds. There's a lot of election reform happening there as well, and some of it is moving in a counter direction towards more access, more voting rights, more openness. Places like Washington state, even some red states like Idaho are opening up absentee voting or California I think is now gonna do automatic absentee ballots to every registered voter for future elections because it worked well for them in 2020. So there's a lot of sort of things not getting media attention but are gonna be just as consequential. The other thing I mentioned just to look ahead is that the next round of elections is 2022. Those will be congressional elections and state legislative elections. And there's a round of redistricting that needs to be snuck in between now and then. So all those district lines are gonna be redrawn. That process is behind schedule because the US Census Bureau was behind schedule in delivering the data. They actually have not provided the data yet that states need to draw those maps. So there's gonna be a rushed process. It's gonna be a partisan process in a lot of states. But I think that will be a growing issue that will be looming over the next round of elections.
1: Let's end on a positive note. What has been making you hopeful recently about political behavior and voting in the U.S. or really anything in general?
0: <laughs> anything in general? Well, the the change from winter to spring and summer is the general thing that's great. Getting outside. I've been vaccinated this semester Uh, That's wonderful. I had a great time teaching courses this spring. None of us would pick Zoom as our preferred way to teach, but I think we've learned how to make it work for a lot of people. And there's some innovative things you can do there that you wouldn't do in a classroom. So I had a pretty good experience this spring, actually. As long as you've got good Wi-Fi, there's a lot that's possible. On the voting side of things, I'll just say we're coming off two historic elections, the 2018 midterms and the 2020 presidential election both set records for voter turnout. The the midterms were the highest turnout in 100 years in a midterm election, just flat out. And the presidential election was also the highest in about that period of time, about 100 years. So to think that's happening despite a pandemic and despite the economic situation, the health situation, the family situation that a lot of people were encountering during 2020, it's really impressive. Sometimes people participate in politics because they're angry. They're upset. They're alarmed. We don't want those to be the motivations. But it, whatever the motivations are, people have persisted and really made their voice heard despite some serious challenges. Indeed. Well, Professor Burton,
2: thank you so much for your time coming on the podcast and talking through all of this with us. We, we do really, really appreciate it. We will let you get going so you can get back to grading those finals and Adam and I can get back to keeping our fingers crossed and rubbing our lucky rabbit's
0: foot. Maybe that's why you asked me about positive things at the end. I'm going to head (laughs) off with a good attitude and that will translate into higher grades for everyone. Let's hope.
1: (laughs) For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman. Produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.